under the earth, on the earth, above the earth, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. What a wonderful, marvelous name. A name whereby salvation resides. A name that we live in and by. The wonderful name of Jesus. We are so grateful. We are so thankful today that we can be here to celebrate to glorify, to magnify your name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Welcome any visitors. A special welcome to my daughter Marie and two of my grandsons. Yay! In 1992, uh, we packed up all of our belongings. Uh, We left uh, Alaska for Centralia, Washington. A little pit stop before we entered into our lifelong dream of serving as missionaries in the Middle East. And we were young and we were energetic and we were able at that time to drive through rain and snow and sleet and hail uh, to reach our uh, destination, whatever it might be. We drove an extended van, it was pretty long, and we were also pulling, I think, it's like a 25-foot uh, trailer and, and back in that day, the Alcan, that is the Alaska-Canadian Highway, uh, was still uh, gravel, about a thousand miles worth. And gravel rumbled incessantly under the floorboard for miles and miles. M- noise such that you couldn't listen to music, uh, you couldn't even talk, you just, uh, you just experienced it as you went dust flying Uh, everywhere in the summer, snow flying everywhere in the winter. And so we were slow and couldn't pass anybody, so we would eat dust, literally. You could taste it in your mouth for miles and miles. So you can imagine our joy when we came across uh, some pavement in the southern half of British Columbia. Uh, for a moment, the silence was deafening. What's wrong? What happened? What's going on? It, all you could hear was the wind going through the, the windows, and so it felt like you were falling. Are we okay? We could cover some distance that day, that night. And so we wanted to make up for lost time, and so on into the night we drove. And at one point, it began to rain. Uh, it began to rain a lot. And then the road became impossibly slick. There were still cars, but it was, it was like black ice. And yet the temperature outside, I think, was in the 50s. And it wasn't, uh, you know, that wasn't the problem. And so I carefully pulled over to the side and I got out of the truck. And what greeted me was a nasty mix of what happens when freshly poured asphalt and torrential rain mixed together by cars spinning out creates an absolute mess. So we immediately quarantined everything. My new sneakers were no longer new. They were tagged and bagged and uh, later disposed of. We put paper down and we stopped in the next city. We pulled into a car wash at about 2 a.m. in the morning. They hadn't shut them all down yet. They did, I heard, the next day. Hopefully not simply because of us. 
And we cleaned as much as we could off of the van and off of the trailer. Uh, it was so such a disaster that we had to use the fuel for our Coleman lanterns, lanterns in order to even clean the brakes and clean everything uh, that we could. Uh, the tar had gotten everywhere. It was amazing. Even when we looked in the back of the van, where neither Barbara or I had been, there was tar back there. How did the tar get back there? It's like it migrated on its own. And it was literally, over the next uh, five years, we would find tar. And I, I'm quite certain that if we did a deep dive uh, today, we could find some of that tar from all those uh, years ago in areas where we have no conscious memory of ever going and it was just a mess. And that event from uh, that time to this time uh, is to me the most perfect illustration uh, in life about the ubiquity of sin. The ever-present, enduring, spreading nature. It's just an amazing thing. Sin that needed a cleansing. Uh, by water and soap and fuel and elbow grease, and yet it persisted. Uh, it reminded me, and uh, reminds me even now as I think about it, and hopefully another time I'll be able to speak more about this, but how, as to how Jewish children uh, would search for yeast during the Passover. Now, the guarantee is that they would find some. In the same way that we searched for tar. And there is a story in the Bible at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ that tells us a little bit about tar, metaphorically speaking, or yeast, uh, metaphorically speaking, that had spread over Jerusalem and had been there so long that the Jews didn't even notice it. So read with me from uh, John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. In John uh, 2, 13 through 25, we, are, we find really an extraordinary story of Jesus' activity in the temple. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found there... Uh, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So John records this temple at cleansing at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's important to note that the three other Gospels, what are known as the Synoptic Gospels, they record a temple cleansing at the end of Jesus' ministry. In fact, the one that they record was one of the proximate causes for the crucifixion of Christ Now, there are significant and sufficient differences between the two stories to see that these two stories uh, bookended the life of Christ, one with the temple cleansing at the beginning of his ministry and one with the temple cleansing at the end. The first one caught the people by surprise. They didn't know what to do. The second one, uh, they plotted his death because of it. So as it was the custom of the uh, Jewish people, they went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. If you've ever wondered about up to Jerusalem, especially since they were coming from the north going down south, that's a reference to geography. Jerusalem uh, was higher, and so everyone went up to uh, Jerusalem. And when we say that, when you when you look at the numbers of people from uh, Uh, As uh, far away in the known world as you could get, people would come there. Scholars estimate that during the Passover, they could have up to two million people there. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of activity. And uh, logistics like that would have been a nightmare. Uh, Sleeping, eating. Uh, taking care of sanitary issues. Those were huge concerns. But those were Jerusalem issues. Those weren't really temple issues. The temple leaders weren't so concerned about that. Their attention was on the sacrifices and the taxes. And so people who wanted to offer a sacrifice, and yet they were coming from a distance like like Greece or somewhere else uh, over uh, further to the west in, in Europe... They uh, would come a long distance and they didn't necessarily want to carry an animal with them. Uh, It might be too costly. It might slow them down, whatever the case. And, of course, the biggest thing is that they may get there and the priests say, yeah, it doesn't meet our temple standards. So you've carried this beast the whole way only to have it rejected. So the easiest thing to do was simply bring money buy one that was already approved, and then take that to the temple for the sacrifice. But in addition to that, there was also this notion of money, because a lot of these people, in fact, the vast majority of these people, came from outside of Jerusalem and outside even of Israel, and they brought with them whatever their currency was. And remember, there was no universal uh, currency then. There was no uh, uh, dollar. Uh, and, uh, and most people then had this uh, foreign currency. And when I say currency, 
I don't mean paper. They didn't carry paper back then. It was all coinage. And so they would uh, have that. And so they needed money changers. So you had to have places for animals that met the standards for the temple sacrifice. You also had to have places where people who could go and they could change their money for the money that the temple would accept. Now, in order to get a fuller picture of what's going on here, you have to have some notion in your mind's eye of the temple. And so the temple, you had the wall. Inside the wall, there was the first court. Now, this court was the court of the Gentiles. This is where the Jews had decided that they were going to sell the animals and change the money. Now, because it was designated for the Gentiles, we say Gentiles. They wouldn't have called those people Gentiles in that day. They were called God-fearers. So these are the people who had taken on uh, Judaism as their faith, as their way of life, and they were God-fearers. And that's as close as they could get. They couldn't get any closer to the temple uh, than that. They could go to this first court, but no further. So that is where they would pray. That is where they would worship. That is the place where they would give glory to God. But the Jews decided that that was going to be the place for the market. And, oh, oh by the way, uh, the, the Greek word for market here, we all know it. It's emporium. So in the, this is one of the distinctions between this cleansing and the cleansing at the end uh, when he says, you have made my father's house into a den of thieves. That's not what he says here. What he says here is you don't make it into an emporium. It's, this is, it's not a market. It's not a market for money changers and people who sell animals. And, and that was... Uh, one thing, but I think one of the really significant issues for Jesus was it's not simply that they were turning the house of the Lord into a marketplace. They were also infringing on the only place the God-fearers could come and worship. So this was the context that Jesus came into. It's important for us to understand that this didn't start that year. And Jesus had been up to the temple years before. He knew all about this. This was not something that was, oh, let's establish this in 30 AD and, and, and it'll be so much easier. This had been going on for years and years and years. It was the way things were. It's not the first time he saw this. And that becomes important because what we need to understand is that while his actions were passionate, they were also thought through. According to verse 15, it says, He made a whip out of cords, drove all the animal sellers and money changers out of the temple, and he also overturned the tables of money, uh, of the money changers. So you can imagine the chaos. Can you imagine this? 
this would have been a scene. And, and we could rightfully apply our uh, English uh, colloquial, it would have been a zoo, because there's birds and sheep and things flying all over the place, and money and tables. It was just people scurrying around trying to pick up the money, I imagine. Some really interesting things about this. Number one, Jesus, even though his disciples were there, it appears that he did this single-handedly. No help from anyone. When I study scriptures, the same way when I study life, one of my principles as it dictates my way of being in the world is things that make you go, huh. So when something makes me go, huh, I, I ask, what is that there for? Now, you've got Jesus here, and no one attempted to stop him. The ever-present temple police, and believe me, they were there, didn't arrest him. What's that all about? Things that make you go, huh. And so, I want to pause here for just a moment. And I think we do need to look at this whip for a moment. The time that it would take to make a whip tells you that what happened in the temple was not Jesus having a flash of anger. That's not what it was. In fact, in my military training, and this is one of the key principles for military officers, is that stated by one general officer at Air Command and Staff College was, do not become angry unless you intend to do so. <laughs> in other words, anger and the expression of anger is a choice. It's not something that just wells up in you and I can no longer control it. Now, it is true that people get into that all the time, but not in this case. Certainly not with Jesus Christ. Jesus did not, and, I, and I'm not saying anything about anger because I'm, I, I, could, I could talk a whole other sermon on anger, why it's there, how to deal with it, how to express it, and how to experience it realistically, authentically, uh, without burying it deep. So that's not why I'm talking about this. I'm talking about this, that Jesus didn't lose his temper because I have another point that I'd like to make. The Greek text gives us two very particular words about this whip. Number one, it was a whip. Sometimes we've seen Jesus sort of flailing ribbons about in the air. Uh, no. The word here is uh, scourge. And it is, in fact, what he made was a Roman lash that was used for public punishment. And some of these things I don't want to read too deeply in, but I, I do want to make a few connections. One, it was a whip used for punishment. Second, it was made from a particular kind of rushes, similar to like the reeds that... Uh, the basket was made for Moses. 
So I'm a curious sort, so I just thought to myself, Self, how long does it take to make a lash from rushes? And sure enough, believe it or not, you can go to YouTube and see. <laughs> and, and, and so it, it wasn't about Jesus. No one was talking about this. But someone was making a rope out of these uh, rushes. And, 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 I, and I watched it. I was, I was entranced with this because even as speedy as can be, it would have taken him a minimum of a half an hour, probably an hour to make this thing. Now, there are those who argue and say, no, he just collected these things up and then put them together and used that. Meh. Uh, maybe so, that's fine. But I don't think so. The word that's used here is that he made this. With his hands, he made this whip. So I'm going to tie two things together. And the connection, I, I acknowledge, is somewhat uh, loose. But I, there's still sufficient logical consistency for me to be able to present it to you, for you to think about in, uh, in here. When you look and listen carefully to what Jesus did from the typical instruction that you'll receive from this passage if you go onto YouTube and download something or, or, or watch it or whatever, they all just gloss over what I cannot gloss over. I simply can't do it. Because the further in the passage, the Jews ask Jesus a question, which is frankly nonsensical. They say, and I don't know if you've ever thought about that, because they ask him, what sign do you give? Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever pondered that at all. Things that make you go, huh, excuse me, but if somebody just destroyed my livelihood for the day, I'm not going to be saying, what sign do you give? I'm going to be on him. I'm going to be getting my money. I'm going to be tackling him. I'm going to say, police, 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 get this guy. Knock him down. What's happening here? You've got all these people. You think there was only one money table? You think there was only one uh, exchanger of animals. Ooh, this guy sounds a little crazy. We're not going to mess with him. No. They let him do what he did. Listen to me. They allowed him to do that. Now, we've got 2,000 years of Christian history that says, well, he was Jesus Christ. They didn't know who he was from Adam. He was just some guy making a stink in the court. Now, I don't like, I just don't like that. Things have to be, to be for me, logically consistent. And that is this. As I reflected on this, I'm going, what could possibly explain what has just happened that makes sense? So admittedly, it's a bit speculative, but it's not speculation. There is a difference. And that, as I was praying about this, the prophets came to my mind. And Jesus was a prophet. And he presented himself as a prophet. 
And one of the things that the prophets did, if you ever want a fun Bible study, look this up. They regularly expressed themselves through symbolic actions. So you got Zedekiah. I mean, he wore a set of iron horns. Can you imagine that, running around the country with iron horns on your head? Ezekiel cut his hair, and then he weighed it, and then he burned it. Hosea married Gomer. Isaiah named his son, wait for it, Mehershalahazbaz. Even then, that took a lot. Isaiah walked around Jerusalem without a shirt on and barefoot. Okay? Jeremiah, don't get me started on Jeremiah. He wore a linen girdle. He worked with a potter. He wore a yoke. He walked around with a yoke on. Okay? Now, just suppose that Jesus stood at the door of the court of Israel which is the door that goes into the temple grounds from the court of the Gentiles. And as he stood there in full view of everybody, he made this whip. Now what's happening is people are looking at him and understanding there's some kind of symbolism that's going on here. And in trying to reconcile Scripture and what happens here, I'm trying to see why it was that God deemed it was important to tell us that he made a whip, but then he didn't explain why. Now, we see what he did with it, but he did not explain why he used it or why he made it. I mean, wouldn't him just waving his arms? Couldn't he just pick up? Why didn't he pick up a lamb by the legs and swing it around? That would get me running. Why did he do this? Well... What might a whip mean and making a whip mean? As it turns out, the whip is universally recognized in the ancient Near East as one of the symbols of royalty, rule, and authority. In fact, in Egypt, just look at any pharaoh, and they're going to have their arms crossed, and they're going to have two things. One is going to be a staff or a hook. The other is going to be a whip. And it was understood everywhere that the person who holds the whip is the person who has the authority. It appears that Jesus was asserting his right in the temple as the king of Israel. There's a remarkable passage in Malachi 3 that reads, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple... And the messenger of the covenant in whom you behold his coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them with gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now the passage obviously has shades of of fulfillment this wasn't the fulfillment of that passage but there's something about it in john 2 where we see the lord coming into his temple and exercising authority to purify to find the tar to find the yeast and to purify the worship of israel and so jesus answers them destroy this temple and in three days i will raise it up and you know and the jews were like what I mean, we're not done with this thing yet. We've been 46 years in the making on it, and, and you're going to do it in, in, in three days. Well, regardless, that event created instantly a deep rift 
between Jesus and the chief priests who had uh, authority. And again, as I mentioned the second time, they made a decision to kill him after he did so after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the claim that he made, no one can make that claim other than Jesus Christ the righteous because it means raising one's body back from the dead. Uh, The best that that we can do is to uh, raise physical structures like buildings and, and bridges. No one... Uh, can give life back to the dead. And yet, that power belongs to God alone, and God's authority exceeds every authority in this world and beyond. John 2.19 contains, this is the earliest prediction made by Jesus about his own resurrection. In three days, I will raise it up. This is where he first revealed Uh, what was to become the greatest miracle of all time, his uh, resurrection. And that miracle is what settles any question about his authority. And Jesus also stated an essential principle in, in verse 16, the house of God must never be made into a market, into an emporium. A few things deserve, in my opinion, greater contempt than the commercialization of religion for selfish purposes. There are many who have tried to part others from their money by promising what religion and in particular what their belief in God will give them miraculous benefits. And let me just say this, God will never withhold his goodness, his mercies, or his miracle from you because you didn't give money to somebody. So they had commercialized the whole thing. Verse 17 tells us that his disciples remembered uh, that uh, it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm uh, 69, David prophesied uh, that of the passion uh, there, but the... That wasn't the Jews' response. Uh, it was quite different. They, they stiffened up. And it, even we're told in verse 21 that the disciples didn't get it. They didn't, they didn't understand what was happening here until after uh, the resurrection to illuminate it. They, they had no idea about the suffering servant. They had no idea that Jesus at that point was going to die according to the scriptures. And... It was after they were able to see this. And so while they were in Jerusalem, Jesus apparently did many, many uh, signs that that John didn't even describe. Even at the end of the book, John goes back to this in a way where he says, there just aren't enough books. And so let me me explain uh, something about the way I understand Scripture. Given that there aren't enough books in the world to contain that which Jesus Christ did in his lifetime, then those things which are written become extraordinarily valuable to look at and to understand. The last part of uh, that the verse in, in 21 reveals that the belief was probably prompted by what they saw. 
In other words, this guy's a miracle worker. Let's follow him. And uh, without hesitation, they would say he's a miracle worker. Uh, He's a great prophet. He's a teacher. He's even come from God. Would they say Messiah? Maybe. Probably not. We see some other stories that some did at least. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify a man for he knew what was in man. So let's learn, I think, an important lesson from these words. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning. The, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in another temple. That would be you. And, and in this temple, sometimes we have money changers. Sometimes we sell animals for sacrifice. He sees and he knows everything that is in your heart. Nothing, nothing can be hidden from him. He knows you better than anyone else. He knows you better than than you do. And there is tar in some of those places. If you don't like tar, pick yeast. If you'd like another metaphor, that's fine too. The point is, is that it takes the aid of the Holy Spirit in our life to, uh, to ferret these things out, to find them, and then to eliminate them. And, and we ask, you know, what are the motives of our, our hearts in ways that are unworthy of Him? Do we tolerate the tar? Do we tolerate the yeast? Do we tolerate the sin? Do we allow it to move and to grow in our hearts willfully. There's a day that will come. Actually, in many ways, when you look at the role of the Holy Spirit, one of the things that the Holy Spirit is, he's got a specific role that he does. He comforts us, but he also does something else. He convicts of sin. And so the purpose of that is not to make us feel bad and feel guilty and feel awful and feel that we can't live up to what he has uh, for us. The purpose of that is to get rid of it. It's to change that. And when you look at what David wrote, you begin to have an understanding of his relationship with God when he said, search me. And know me. He was inviting the Lord to come into him and to find those things that were not pleasing to God. It's as if you were to say to the Lord, I, in, I invite you, Lord, to go through my closets right now, today. No, no advanced cleanup. Come to my, through my cupboards and, and under my sinks and look and see what you find there. In my case, my garage. And see what you find there. Is there something that's not pleasing to you that I wasn't even aware of? Let me know. And I invite you. I invite you to invite him to come in, not for judgment, with the 
whip. That will happen one day to most, but not to those of us who believe. But to come in and to cleanse and to make whole and to heal. Father, we, we come before you and we do stand amazed in your presence. The wonderful name of Jesus Christ, his glories to behold. We are so grateful and thankful that you not just tolerate us, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so that we might have life. Life now abundantly and for one day forever. Lord, in this life now, may we live in such a way, it's not that we don't have tar or yeast, but let us have a watchful eye to cleanse or to ask you to cleanse for us these things. Through Christ our Lord, amen.